This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton. Section 22. Part 2. The Explanations of Innocent Smith. Chapter 3. The Round Road, or the Desertion Charge. Part 2. It was when the railway strike was almost over, and a few trains came through at long intervals, that I stood one day watching a train that had come in. Only one person got out of the train, far away up at the other end of it, for it was a very long train. It was evening with a cold greenish sky, a little snow had fallen, but not enough to whiten the plain, which stretched away a sort of sad purple in all directions, save where the flat tops of some distant tablelands caught the evening light like lakes. As the solitary man came stamping along on the thin snow by the train, he grew larger and larger. I thought I had never seen so large a man. But he looked even taller than he was, I think because his shoulders were very big and his head comparatively little. From the big shoulders hung a tattered old jacket, striped dull red and dirty white, very thin for the winter, and one hand rested on a huge pole such as peasants rake in weeds with to burn them. Before he had traversed the full length of the train he was entangled in one of those knots of rowdies that were the embers of the extinct revolution, though they mostly disgraced themselves upon the government side. I was just moving to his assistance when he whirled up his rake and laid out right and left with such energy that he came right through them without scathe, and strode up to me, leaving them staggered and really astonished. Yet when he reached me, after so abrupt an assertion of his aim, he could only say, rather dubiously in French, that he wanted a house. "'There are not many houses to be had round here,' I answered in the same language. The district has been very disturbed. A revolution, as you know, has recently been suppressed. Any further building? Oh, I don't mean that, he cried. I mean a real house, a live house. It really is a live house, for it runs away from me. I am ashamed to say that something in his phrase or gesture moved me profoundly. We Russians are brought up in an atmosphere of folklore, and its unfortunate effects can still be seen in the bright colors of the children's dolls and of the icons. For an instant the idea of a house running away from a man gave me pleasure, for the enlightenment of a man moves slowly. "'You have no other house of your own?' I asked. "'I have left it,' he said very sadly. "'It was not the house that grew dull, but I that grew dull in it. My wife was better than all women, and yet I could not feel it.' "'And so,' I said with sympathy, "'you walk straight out the front door like a masculine Nora.' Nora, he inquired politely, apparently supposing it to be a Russian word. I mean Nora in the doll's house, I replied. At this he looked very much astonished, and I knew he was an Englishman, for Englishmen always think that Russians study nothing but Eucasis. The doll's house, he cried vehemently, why, that's just where Ibsen was so wrong. Why, the whole aim of a house is to be a doll's house. Don't you remember when you were a child how those little windows were windows? while the big windows weren't. A child has a doll's house and shrieks when a front door opens inwards. A banker has a real house, yet how numerous are the bankers, 
who fail to emit the faintest shriek when their real front door opens inwards. Something from the folklore of my infancy still kept me foolishly silent, and before I could speak, the Englishman had leaned over and was saying a sort of loud whisper, I have found out how to make big things small. I have found out how to turn a house into a doll's house. Get a long way off it. God lets us turn all things into toys by his great gift of distance. Once let me see my old brick house standing up quite little against the horizon, and I shall want to go back to it again. I shall see the funny little toy lamp-post painted green against the gate, and all the dear little people like dolls looking out of the window. For the windows really open in my doll's house. But why, I ask, should you wish to return to that particular doll's house? Having taken, like Nora, the bold step against convention, having made yourself in the conventional sense disreputable, having dared to be free, why should you not take advantage of your freedom? As the greatest modern writers have pointed out, what you called your marriage was only your mood. You have a right to leave it all behind you, like the clippings of your hair or the parings of your nails. Having once escaped, you have the world before you. Though the words may seem strange to you, you are free in Russia. He sat with his dreamy eyes on the dark circles of the plains where the only moving thing was the long and laboring trail of smoke out of the railway engine, violet in tint, volcanic in outline, the one hot and heavy cloud of that cold, clear evening of pale green. Yes, he said with a huge relief, I am free in Russia, you are right. I could really walk into that town over there and have love all over again and perhaps marry some beautiful woman and begin again and nobody could ever find me. Yes, you have certainly convinced me of something. His tone was so queer and mystical that I felt impelled to ask him what he meant, and of what exactly I had convinced him. You have convinced me, he said, with that same dreamy eye, why it is really wicked and dangerous for a man to run away from his wife. And why is it dangerous, I inquired. Why? Because nobody can find him, answered this odd person, and we all want to be found. The most original modern thinkers, I remarked, Ibsen, Gorky, Nietzsche, Shaw, would all rather say that what we want most is to be lost, to find ourselves in untrodden paths and to do unprecedented things, to break with the past and belong to the future. He rose to his whole height somewhat sleepily and looked round on what was, I confess, a somewhat desolate scene. The dark purple plains, the neglected railroad, the few ragged knots of malcontents, I shall not find the house here, he said. It is still eastward, further and further eastward. Then he turned upon me with something like fury, and struck the foot of his pole upon the frozen earth. And if I do go back to my country, he cried, I may be locked up in a madhouse before I reach my own house. I have been a bit unconventional in my time. Why, Nietzsche stood in a row of ramrods in a silly old Prussian army, and Shaw takes temperance beverages in the suburbs but the things I do are unprecedented things. This round road I am treading is an untrodden path. I do believe in breaking out. I am a revolutionist, but don't you see that all these real leaps and destructions and escapes are only attempts to get back to Eden, to something we have had, to something we at least have heard of? Don't you see one only breaks the fence or shoots the moon in order to get home? No, I answered after due reflection. I don't think I should accept that. Ah, he said with a sort of sigh, then you have explained a second thing to me. 
What do you mean? I asked. What thing? Why your revolution has failed, he said. And walking across quite suddenly to the train, he got into it, just as it was steaming away at last. And as I saw the long snaky tail of it disappear along the darkening flats, I saw no more of him. But though his views are adverse to the best advanced thought, he struck me as an interesting person. I should like to find out if he has produced any literary works. Yours, etc., Paul. There was something in this odd set of glimpses into foreign lives which kept the absurd tribunal quieter than it had hitherto been, and it was again without interruption that Inglewood opened another paper upon his pile. The court will be indulgent, he said, if the next note lacks the special ceremonies of our letter-writing. It is ceremonious enough in its own way. The celestial principles are permanent. Greeting. I am Wong Hai, and I tend the temple of all the ancestors of my family in the forest of Fu. The man that broke through the sky and came to me said that it must be very dull, but I showed him the wrongness of his thought. I am indeed in one place, for my uncle took me to this temple when I was a boy, and in this I shall doubtless die. But if a man remains in one place he shall see that the place changes. The pagoda of my temple stands up silently out of all the trees, like a yellow pagoda above many green pagodas. But the skies are sometimes blue like porcelain, and sometimes green like jade, sometimes red like garnet. But the night is always ebony, and always returns, said the Emperor Ho. The sky-breaker came at evening very suddenly, for I had hardly seen any stirring in the tops of the green trees over which I look, as over a sea, when I go to the top of the temple at morning. And yet when he came, it was as if an elephant had strayed from the armies of the great kings of India, for palms snapped and bamboos broke, and there came forth in the sunshine before the temple, one taller than the sons of men. Stripes of red and white hung about him like ribbons of a carnival, and he carried a pole with a row of teeth on it like the teeth of a dragon. His face was white and discomposed, after the fashion of the foreigners, so that they looked like dead men filled with devils, and he spoke our speech brokenly. He said to me, This is only a temple. I am trying to find a house. And then he told me with indelicate haste, that the lamp outside his house was green, and that there was a red post at the corner of it. I have not seen your house, nor any houses, I answered. I dwell in this temple, and I serve the gods. Do you believe in the gods? he asked, with a hunger in his eyes, like the hunger of a dog. And this seemed to me a strange question to ask, for what should a man do, except what men have done? My lord, I said, it must be good for men to hold up their hands, even if the skies are empty, for if there are gods, they will be pleased, and if there are none, then there are none to be displeased. Sometimes the skies are gold, and sometimes porphyry, and sometimes ebony, but the trees and the temple stand still under it all. So the great Confucius taught us that if we do always the same things with our hands and our feet, as do the wise beasts and birds, with our heads we may think many things. Yes, my lord, and doubt many things. So long as men offer rice at the right season, and kindle lanterns at the right hour, it matters little whether there be gods or no, for these things are not to appease gods, but to appease men. He came yet closer to me, so that he seemed enormous, yet his look was very gentle. Break your temple, he said, and your gods will be freed. 
and i smiling at his simplicity answered and so if there be no gods i shall have nothing but a broken temple and at this the giant from whom a light of reason was withheld threw out his mighty arms and asked me to forgive him and when i asked him for what he should be forgiven he answered for being right your idols and emperors are so old and wise and satisfying he cried it is a shame that they should be wrong we are so vulgar and violent we have done you so many iniquities it is a shame we should be right after all and i still enduring his harmlessness asked him why he thought that he and his people were right and he answered we are right because we are bound where men should be bound and free where men should be free we are right because we doubt and destroy laws and customs but we do not doubt our own right to destroy them for you live by customs but we live by creeds behold me in my country i am called smite my country is abandoned my name is defiled because i pursue around the world what really belongs to me you are as steadfast as the trees because you do not believe i am as fickle as the tempest because i do believe i do believe in my own house which i shall find again and at the last remaineth the green lantern and the red post. I said to him, At the last remaineth only wisdom. But even as I said the word, he uttered a horrible shout, and rushing forward disappeared among the trees. I have not seen this man again, nor any other man. The virtues of the wise are of fine brass, Wong high. The next letter I have to read, proceeded Arthur Inglewood, will probably make clear the nature of our client's curious but innocent experiment. It is dated from a mountain village in California, and runs as follows. Sir, a person answering to the rather extraordinary description required, certainly went some time ago over the high pass of the Sierras on which I live, and of which I am probably the sole stationary inhabitant. I keep a rudimentary tavern, rather ruder than a hut, on the very top of this specially steep and threatening pass. My name is Louis Hara, and the very name may puzzle you about my nationality. Well, it puzzles me a great deal. When one has been for fifteen years without society, it is hard to have patriotism, and where there is not even a hamlet, it is difficult to invent a nation. My father was an Irishman of the fiercest and most free-shooting of the old Californian kind, my mother was a Spaniard, proud of descent from the old Spanish families round San Francisco, yet accused for all that of some admixture of red Indian blood. I was well educated and fond of music and books, but like many other hybrids I was too good or too bad for the world, and after attempting many things I was glad enough to get a sufficient, though a lonely living in this little cabaret in the mountains. In my solitude I fell into many of the ways of a savage like an Eskimo, I was shapeless in winter like a red Indian. I wore in hot summers nothing but a pair of leather trousers, with a great straw hat as big as a parasol, to defend me from the sun. I had a bowie knife at my belt, and a long gun under my arm, and I dare say I produced a pretty wild impression on the few peaceable travellers that could climb up to my place. But I promise you I never looked as mad as that man did. Compared with him, I was Fifth Avenue. I dare say that living under the very top of the Sierras has an odd effect on the mind. One tends to think of those lonely rocks not as peaks coming to a point, but rather as pillars holding up heaven itself. 
straight cliffs sail up and away beyond the hope of the eagles cliffs so tall that they seem to attract the stars and collect them as sea crags collect a mere glitter of phosphorus these terraces and towers of rock do not like smaller crests seem to be the end of the world rather they seem to be its awful beginning its huge foundations we could almost fancy the mountains branching out above us like a tree of stone and carrying all those cosmic lights like a candelabrum for just as the peaks failed us soaring impossibly far so the stars crowded us as it seemed coming impossibly near the spheres burst about us more like thunderbolts hurled at the earth than planets circling placidly about it the end of section twenty two